0: Broadcasting live from Devil's Kettle. This is the monstrous feminine podcast where horrible humans talk about horror. My name is Zeba, and I'm joined by my sexy succubi,
1: Mila, Louisa, and Taya.
0: And this month is our Pride special. We're having a little break and only releasing one episode this month, but it is a very special one. We are revisiting a crowd favorite we discussed in our very first episode of The Monstrous Feminine, the 2009 horror comedy Jennifer's Body, directed by Karen Kusama. Before we get into the film, go ahead and follow us on Spotify, YouTube, or the Apple Podcast app. You find all of our links on our Instagram at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast.
2: In Jennifer's body, the alluring and popular high schooler Jennifer takes her nerdy best friend Needy to a gig at an old pub in their small town to see an unknown indie band called Low Shoulder. A fire burns the venue down, but the pair are amongst the few who manage to escape, and the shaken Jennifer agrees to leave with the band despite Needy's protests. Later on at home, Needy vents her concerns to her boyfriend on the phone, but is interrupted by Jennifer's sudden bloody appearance. From that point onwards, Jennifer begins behaving even more callously, and as the bodies of local boys turn up brutally eviscerated and half-consumed, Needy starts to suspect that her bestie has transformed from heartbreaker to literal man-eater. Meanwhile, the band Low Shoulder starts to receive national fame, and Jennifer eventually reveals to Needy that they sacrificed her body in a ritual to achieve success, but it backfired because of her non-virgin status, causing her to become a demonic succubus. You know what? I think the lead singer wants me. Only because he thinks that you're a
0: virgin, I heard them talking. What?
2: I'm not even a backdoor virgin anymore, thanks to Roman. And by the way... That hurts. I couldn't even go to Flax the next day. I had to stay home and sit on a bag of frozen peas. Oh my God. So guys, if you've been listening from the very beginning of the Monstrous Feminine podcast, you'll know that we talked about Jennifer's body in episode one. We did a bonus episode on this a while back, but we talked about the origin of the podcast and that first episode was done for a grade that we did as a part of our MA course. We had a very limited amount of time that we could talk about each film. And I think there's just so much in Jennifer's body that we all find so interesting and we all love it as a film. And we just want to have a bit more space now that we're kind of doing the podcast in our own style to so just really go into it and discuss all the points in greater detail. Because the first episode, I think, is a good like lead into the film or overview, but there's so much that we could really dig into that we didn't have the space to in that episode. I think my chemistry, especially with the rest of y'all, was
1: Zab-
0: particularly <laughs> potent. Zeba was... Behind the scenes. I saw myself more as like the wizard in the Wizard of Oz. Like I was just behind the wall, but I'm making up the magic happen, you know? And I think it was felt. I am very interested in hearing your thoughts, Ava. I've long sat on these. I've sat on these thoughts for three years and they've been marinating.
3: The monstrous women is on Instagram, so please comment on our post. If you do engage with our content, you might just get a shout out on our next episode as our Witch of the Week. This episode, our witch of the Week, is Shyla Sermons, who commented on our Chucky post and said, Love the episode. Literally ran to watch right after listening. This film is so good. can't wait for Megan. Thank you so much, Shyla. Thanks for listening. We love having you as a listener. Let us know if you like the Megan episode.
2: They did. They commented on our Megan post
3: friendly reminder that we're also on patreon for one pound a month you gain access to our discord for three pounds a month you get to hear a cut discussion for our main episodes and for five pounds a month you get all that plus the opportunity to pick our themes films and discussion points please support us any contribution helps
2: i had a little listen of our episode one and it made me cringe a little bit as it always does when i listen back to me speaking specifically But it was illuminating because I think we talked, like I said, about a lot of stuff, but didn't really have time to delve into it. So I thought this would be a great opportunity for us to talk about it a little bit more. We talked about this film not being successful at its time when it was released. And Mila raised the point that it was a film for women, but it was marketed for men and it failed as a cheap B horror movie because it's not really like a jump scare slasher, so to speak. But it also failed because it doesn't actually give the men who went to see the movie, that transformers gaze of Megan Fox. Like it's more from the viewpoint of like that satirical female guys. I just thought we could really do more to unpack that in this episode. For example, We didn't talk about some factual stuff, like the marketing campaign actually did, and this was a real quote, say, Jennifer's sexy, she's still your boyfriend. That was the way they were marketing what is actually quite a profound commentary on like misogyny and patriarchy and sexual assault, like all of those themes and female friendships. All of that is like really packed into this movie and that's how it's being sold to people. I think that was like wild. Constance Grady talked about this for an article for Vox and they cited some headlines so one was if you're in search for a way to ogle Megan Fox's body there are a lot better ways to do it than subjecting yourself to this that was by real views and then Jennifer's body is not funny nor is it sexy the girls keep their clothes on nor is it scary it's all just special effects and that was some website thing called combustible celluloid. I do think that it shows like a lot about how this was received in its moment, which was a lot to do with how it was marketed and it misled people and didn't reach the right audience necessarily.
0: Do you feel like that was like a miscalculation on their part or was it like meant to be? Because like, okay, it would be really interesting if the idea was to reach an audience of like douchebag men who needed to hear this message or see representation like this.
3: I feel like this and Babylon, I really want a comparison study on severely not getting the right audience, like advertising to people who were never going to see this film to begin with. I feel like Transformers does enough sexualization of Megan Fox that men would probably just go watch Transformers if they just wanted to like stare at how hot she is. This was a film that I think should have obviously been marketed toward women and maybe the queer community and horror fans but instead they really went with a weird sort of campaign that almost misses the message of the film i don't really think this was necessarily like diablo cody or anyone involved decision um it just seemed like it was just like the studio didn't really know who was gonna watch the film like they didn't know who the audience was gonna be and I think it found a home later on as like a cult classic because I think there were also a lot of people who resonated with Megan Fox's struggle of being sexualized in the industry. And at the time, I don't think that was a message or like a conversation that a lot of people were having, particularly not young women. It was just kind of something that you were just kind of taught to accept or almost seek out, especially when you go back and look at early 2000s rom-coms or movies in general. It's very much the, like not like other girls. You should hate the girl who is like ostentatiously hot and flirty with men like that's your enemy. Even like the pop songs from then, not to come for Taylor Swift, but like in You Belong With Me, like the she wears short skirts, I wear t-shirts. There was all this comparison between people who are considered more traditionally attractive or sexy and more forward um, and then being more like passive, like needy. and wearing converse which are not any determinant of your hotness or whatever i'm not like other girls signature shoe was converse and so i think there was like this underlying misogyny even with within amongst other women of thinking women who were like overtly hot like megan fox were the enemy and i feel like to this day that kind of still exists and i feel like this movie really heavily marketed into like chip is the exception out of all of the guys because he doesn't actually like think that jennifer's hotter than needy and that's why he was somewhat spared
2: yeah i don't we didn't talk about that in episode one and it was something i i literally wrote it down in my notes app of like i want to go point my point about this asshole because we did not have time to lay into him in F one, but we need to.
3: Also, I really think the band name Low Shoulder is a terrible band name,
2: but so realistic. Like I see it, you know,
3: certain two thousands era of like Warp tour. I could easily see them being on that.
2: I don't
1: know if I thought this or said this, but this film is used and held up as an example of this. This film is in no way the female gaze. In the same way that like Cabin in the Woods use the male gaze on a technical level as like a voyeuristic camera gaze in order to subvert and satirize it. Sure, it operates within that, but in no way is it like breaking ground in order to create like a new way of viewing through the camera. It's not doing that. I think what people misunderstand with the female gaze is that it's not simply female narratives being prioritized, made significant in giving depth and pay more attention to it's like a film theory that's at its like core very very technical. and to be fair I'm not like against people taking certain theoretical terms and kind of molding them when applied to like a broader context because that's like how human beings work but I don't think this film is as groundbreaking from like a feminist uh, Erbony's perspective it does highlight and celebrate and explore with, like, nuanced female friendships in a really wonderful way. But I don't think it's, there's not something beyond the narrative. Do you know what I mean? I still think it, I think it's still very much from a male gaze. It's trying to, like, draw attention to it and satirize it. But I personally don't think that counts as something, like, moving away from the male gaze towards a female gaze.
3: What I was going to say is I think with this movie what makes this movie interesting is it kind of shows the relationship between envy and desire is very similar and Karen Kazama is the director on this and she's a producer on Yellow Jackets and Jackie and Shauna kind of have a similar dynamic of where Shauna envies Jackie a lot and it starts to be this point where she even says in season two she doesn't know where Jackie ends and she begins and that sort of envy sort of also has these undertones of sexual desire and the desire to be with and also be Jackie and it kind of feels almost like when you see the show that Shauna being with Jeff is almost a way to be with Jackie and similarly The dynamic between Jennifer and Needy feels very much like they're mutually envious of each other. And when Jennifer goes after Chip at the end, it is basically to lure Needy out, but also feels like a way to be with Needy. She knows that Chip is the only person that Needy has actually had sex with and is very special to her. So going after him feels very similar to like the idea of being with Needy. But I don't think that's something that we see discussed in media often, especially not with like teenage girls. And I think when we see like film, sports films with guys and we're like, why does this feel so homoerotic? It's like that the envy and like the competitiveness that envy brings out has very sexual and desirability undertones to it. Because at the end of the day, you are desiring to be that person or you're desiring something from them. And it just gets very blurred. I feel like this is a movie that very much benefits from the fact that it's very noticeable how much, th- how similar those two things are. Versus I think in other films, they use it as kind of a way of like, ah, oh, isn't this hot, like these two sweaty people competing against each other or something. But this film leans into it as a way of like, there's even some scenes where there are sexual or physical moments between them, like when they make out on the bed. And Jennifer hints that they've done stuff like that in the past where you're like, Oh, like there is this sort of layer to the relationship where the, there's so much envy and desire between them that they are physical with each other. So I think this movie does that really well, and that's also a part of teenage girlhood and also just womanhood in general. Where I think sometimes envy gets blurred with desirability. Like, what are you really? Are you envious of the person, or do you desire the person? Like, those are two things that are very similar. I don't think everyone who envies a female celebrity is truly jealous of them. I think in a way, maybe they wish they either were with them or they could experience uh, viewing them from the male gaze in a way. And also, since we're viewing the, the film from, we know Needy is our narrator at the end, well, and during the film. And I feel like the way that we see Jennifer in the film is how Needy sees her we see her as like the person everyone wants and we see her at her vulnerable moments but we're also seeing the fact that needy does desire jennifer and not just in a way of like she wants to have this attention she wants to flirt with a goth guy it's also like she genuinely also sees jennifer as very attractive and she does view her the same way that all of their male counterparts does she just also sees the more vulnerable moments of Jennifer but she also is just seeing her from the same lens because like the their friendship their envy the desirability is all very much overlapped and has created a version of her that is also sort of blended with the male gaze so I definitely agree with Mila that this film is not the female gaze but also I don't really think the female gaze can exist yet
2: something Mila said in episode one which was talking about the significance of the female director and like how it shows the usefulness of it is that it provides insight and like shows the ugly sides of females' friendships. And I think I then follow and talk about how I found it relatable as a queer youth, like that competitive or half in love with your straight best friend situation. I think that point about the ugly side of female friendships is like really interesting looking back now because I was reading a bit more about it and what you just said previously, Taya, now in the contemporary moment about um, like about two women and that competitiveness. So I was reading about this and apparently Cody said in a Reuters interview that the key reason for writing the film was to bring to the screen a new way of expressing the intensity of female bonds and that the adolescent female friendships she experienced, Cody, were unparalleled in their intensity and she wanted to show the quote almost horrific end quote aspect of such devotion in relation to its parasitism so i think this film is queer and i actually i'll get to it but i think there's an argument for the female gaze but i do vibe with what you guys are saying about um the fact that it's really unpacking like internalized misogyny i think that there's something more overtly queer than that but i do think you're right does like envy is desire and its t- desire can be conflated with something sexual and i thought that this was an interesting angle to explore because i know we're doing it with our pride app and i do think it's queer but it's interesting to note that the root of this wasn't necessarily queer it was actually just like exploring how that like feelings of inner insecurity and competitiveness can transmute into something like resembling desire a queer desire do you know what I mean I think there's an argument for the female gaze in that subversiveness I agree it's it's objectifying Megan Fox even as it's making this point and I'm like okay is that can it be a female gaze if it does that I find it is so maybe you're right and I'm not talking about it from a technical perspective of filmmaking but I am talking about it from like overall what I think the significance of a female director does which is yes it does provide that insight but it also just makes a complete mockery of like, the patriarchy as it's doing it. Do you know what I mean? It's done with a purpose. It's done with intention. It's done to make a comment on it. That's not to say that we don't still have, like, like internalized, misogynistic, sexist one-liners that, like, Jennifer's character regurgitate or needy, for example. But that's kind of done for the more comedic elements. But I do think in that, like, questioning of it, that subversion of it, there's something that I think could resemble the female gaze in that how they interact
1: especially within the context of female friendships and then like you said Louisa potentially queer romantic and or sexual feelings I think those get really muddled together and I I think the film does like contextualize as well that a lot of the reasons for female friendships being kind of riddled with that envy and then therefore this sort of confused desire it's just because of like how the patriarchy like establishes Women's role in society is just their currency and their value being wholly tied to them as sexual beings from, unfortunately, a very very young age. You touched on like, the internalized misogyny that like crops up in this film. I think that we, obviously, to various degrees, to some we could never really unravel internalize a lot of the misogyny we encounter, and therefore project that and treat our female friends with the same, in the same way. A lot of that envy comes from seeking validation, but also being frustrated with the roles we're subjected to. Back on the female gaze point, I really respect Laura Mulvey. I think at the time, it was absolutely needed, vital, as a way to look back on cinema history and think, okay, what is the visual language we've established? And how can we pinpoint the ways? It's like a reflection of patriarchy, I think that was really, really important. However, the way it's used today, it's becoming more and more like within the tradition of white feminism,
2: trying to like, combat the male gaze by replicating it. I guess when I was saying I can see the female gaze perspective, I meant to say I can see why it would still hold up as a feminist film, even while it's still perpetuating some misogynistic elements. Not so much engaging with the concept of the female gaze, which I agree is nowadays being a bit condensed and flattened and shortened to mean one thing and I actually would agree with you Taya when you say it does like it might not exist yet because and also it was something Zeba said a while ago can't remember what episode but it was like we all have a male gaze inside of our head I think that's what's interesting about this film it's not to say that it doesn't it avoids any potholes of misogyny I think it it absolutely upholds them in many ways but it also makes a mockery of them and that's what I think is subversive and interesting about this film it's like does this have a queer gaze i think it does but it's like there's so many layers to it like it's really hard to break through with queerness because i remember being a young queer woman who was attracted to my best friend but also battling like patriarchal like internalized misogyny and then also competing with it's like all in this huge web so i don't think it's not necessarily a queer gaze or something like that but it's like all of these themes are really difficult to find expression in a film that's so overtly operating within the patriarchy even with its choice of actor like on a meta level it's battling those things and on like a like a script level do you know what i mean so it's hard to categorize it outside or neatly as like female gaze queer gaze because it's so tangled in what it's trying to deconstruct even as it does it but i do think it's feminist and queer
3: what i was gonna say is i feel like there's nothing wrong with the phrase the female gaze I don't think it exists yet because I feel like a lot of what people associate is as the female gaze is the same way that they say a man was written by a woman. It's just this very false idea of a woman doing something automatically makes it different. This film is like very much from the male gaze. It's just a female director. It's not to say that I feel like anyone's being objectified or anything. I think we're just seeing needy view Jennifer through the male gaze. Like when people are like, Little Women from Greta Gerwig is Little Women from a Female Gaze. I'm like, it's the same movie. It's the same movie, y'all. The only thing is like Greta Gerwig's version gave Amy more depth and like more sympathy. You see that uh, film or TV show. I think people kind of get it mixed up in their head that in itself is a gaze. And I'm like, that's just a perspective. There's just another layer to show like a project can be feminist and not necessarily be from the female gaze, because I think we don't have enough of a framework of what defines the female gaze. I just don't think that it's really been talked about. Whereas we have many texts and hundreds of years of film that we can say is this is the male gaze. I don't think it needs to be put as like a direct comparison to the male gaze. I feel like it's something entirely different. When I think about this film, and one of the things that make it very much feminist to me is that Needy and Jennifer are able to have like uh, the desirability and envy between them is still hot. It's sexy because there's not a power dynamic at play. And I think that's part of the reason why some of the best enemies to lovers stories that we know are all queer stories. It doesn't feel like someone's being explicitly manipulated into a relationship when they're on an equal playing ground is entirely different than when it's enemies to lovers and it's a heterosexual man and a girl who he's very mean to like that just feels so weird but you know when it's like when it's two girls who are mean to each other or it's two guys like it's entirely different and it feels different and like you can feel the sexual tension between it and it's like oh like this is this is entirely different and that's why the dynamics between Jennifer and Needy is interesting because It's not like Jennifer, even though she's popular and she has all these people who want her, is necessarily in a position of power over needy. Like they're very much equals and Jennifer never says or does anything to needy to make her feel like she's less than her besides the nickname needy. But that's more of like a behavior that she exhibits than something explicitly saying like, I think you're ugly and you're beneath me. It very much feels like they see each other as wanting something that the other has. But in a way of not seeing necessarily the other person is better than them, just something that they want. And that's something that would have made this as a situation of like, even if Jennifer literally had a nerdy guy best friend, that would immediately make this so much more uncomfortable. And I do think youth relationships and friendships are very intense, even when they are like a guy and a girl, like the friendships that I had with my guy friends when I was younger were far more intense than the ones that I have now, just because. I don't have the same sort of like conversations with my guy friends that I would have when I was like 13 or something. I just have certain things that I talk about like with my female friends or like with my queer friends that I would just not have with like a a straight guy that I'm friends with. But I think when you're younger, those boundaries exist less. Like there's girl talk or whatever, quote unquote, but I think those boundaries exist less and create a lot more like you have crushes on your friends a lot more often when you're growing up. But if this would have been a situation where Needy was Chip and Jennifer was still Jennifer, this would have felt really icky. But even if you switch it to Needy and Jennifer being two different, like two guys that still is there. Like there's something about the equality between them that makes the connection attractive. And when you flip it the other way, you get like 50 shades of gray.
0: Connecting what you and Louisa were talking about I guess, like, the queer gaze to me is also infiltrated by the male gaze for all types of queerness, right? Like, I think this is more a movie about desirability and jealousy than it is about, like, what is feminist or what is, like... Yeah, where teen- like teenage girlhood is wrapped up in all of this because, like, Needy has learned what is attractive also by what all of society tells you is attractive which is through the male gaze right like she's attracted to Megan Fox in the same way all the other characters are attracted to her all the teenage boys are attracted to her she's dressing in a way that is like meant to like indicate to you visually I am hot I am sexy I am attractive and so her friend who spends a lot of time with her develops an attraction for her I think that is clear and I think that is clear in like all types of desirability queer straight or otherwise like Everybody's attracted to, like, this type of hot chick. Everybody's attracted to this type of, like, hot, sexy guy. The era will dictate what that hot, sexy person looks like, but it's all generally the same. Even through the, uh, what people would call, like, a gold star queer lens, there's certain types of non-binary people who are considered attractive. Certain types of lipstick lesbians are considered attractive. Certain types of studs or mask folks who are considered attractive. And it's all, I still think, through the male gaze. I can't explain it. Like, it all still feels, like, filtered through that sieve. Even when it's purely queer, right? Like, we don't let ourselves be creative in what is considered attractive. Like, I think it is even more radical to be attracted to, like, a needy than it is to, like, just have queer attraction generally and she's still a white woman. Even that is through the male lens, right? Like she's still just like a thin white woman, it's still a mandase free with glasses on, right? It's not actually I don't think it's queering much. It would be more remarkable to me to see an enemies to lovers, a queer friends to lovers sort of storyline where like we are challenging even what is considered desirable right and putting on screen something that is very unexpected for the audience and acknowledging that like people are attracted to these things it's just like maybe never acted upon right like the fact that that they are even allowed to express their attraction to each other i feel is still predetermined by the fact that they are both like conventionally attractive white women right like that it's still hot to see on screen is determined by them holding those identities, right? That we even get like a slow makeout scene with them on the bed in a mainstream movie is still the male gaze, right? It's still determined by like what is pleasant for like mainstream audiences to consume. And I, I don't know, I would, I would, this is 2009. I still think we're trapped in that a little bit, right? Like even in, Feminist movies made by women, queer movies made by queer people, etc, etc, etc. I still think we have like archetypes of desirability and what we are allowed to desire and express desire for publicly, whether that be in a movie theater or like on social media talking about it. It's really, really not that radical to be like, "I thought Megan Fox was hot in this movie." Yeah, no shit. Or to even say like, "I thought Amanda Seafried was hot in this movie." Yeah, okay, what else? It just. I don't know. I think I I hear what you're saying and that like, I have rarely if ever seen anybody stray from that mold in any way that feels particularly like radical and that, that pushed other movies to do things that are more outside the box. The box still feels really, 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 really small about what is desirable, even within a feminist lens, a female gaze, a queer gaze like it's so it's just like it's such a bummer honestly to like have to like sit through that over and over and over and over again I never had those intense friendships I, I never had a crush on my friends every now and then maybe I'd be like oh yeah that person's attractive but for the most part I never experienced like that type of like competition with my girlfriends and I think that I mean, we can unpack that further, that maybe because I didn't feel like I was a girl, I didn't feel like I was, they were my competition. I didn't desire what they had, I suppose, right? Like, and that meant that I wasn't like, attracted to what they had, it, right? Like, those, those feelings never got the chance to like mishmash. But I can understand how this would be like, a really revealing thing to watch as a young person. Because when I watched this when I was young, I didn't even register it as gay. And that's ridiculous because they're literally making out. when I watched it the first time, probably in 2009, the hints went right over my head and until they're making out on the bed. And even then I was like, is this imagination? Is this a dream? This doesn't feel real. Like this doesn't feel like how this would happen. Like even then I was like, hmm, this still feels like it's for boys. And maybe that's like, because the marketing got to me before I watched the movie. And I, at that time was a child and had no critical thinking skills. But even then, it took me until watching it as an adult to be like, wait, this is a game rubric.
2: There's so much that I want to say. Like, I don't even know where to begin. I've been trying to, like, write in live action as you guys are both talking, like, how to respond. I completely agree with the concept of what's desirable not being radical, and I'm kind, And I kind of agree with what's emerging in that, like, do we have a queer female gaze in like a, in like a structural way that we can easily point to, because it's hard when what we're commenting on isn't, isn't interrogating much, as you said, Bila, like, so how useful is the female gaze when it's perpetuating gender binaries, like as a queer audience, like that's also not exactly the most helpful as like a critical tool to like, analyze these. And as you're pointing out as well, uh, Zeba, about like the fact that they're both still white women who fall into like convention, like it is still medicine scene with glasses on. I think it's like what this film can accomplish and could reasonably accomplish, and also what it failed to accomplish. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like in that time is limited. Like in 2009, I don't feel like they were ready to unpack all of that and give us a truly like gender bending, queer, non-linear perspective. They couldn't even handle this perspective because this film was not well-received. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't until later on that this became like a better like cult classic. Do you know what I'm saying? So I just feel like I would love a more kind of radical approach, but I don't think it would have been well-received or even created. I think there was another point you said, Taya, about like how... I think it is the female gaze if we're looking at the female gaze as like providing insight into women's experiences. Yes, Tick, it definitely does that. Needy is able to see through Jennifer's performance of sexuality in order to see her vulnerability. And I think one of those heartbreaking points of this film is when she's like looking into the van and knows what's about to happen. And it's it's all like, you know, I think Needy's the only one who can see the humanity beneath like the sexual like creation that Jennifer is enacting because of her own insecurity and internalized misogyny do you know what i'm saying so i think like that is radical and was radical for the time and they couldn't even handle it then as a mainstream let alone like even deeper conversations that we would want to be having if it's not a queer gaze i do think there are some elements the queer experience at least i found relatable i do think
3: maybe it has a lot of added meaning based on what it has meant for the community to embrace it as a cult classic over time. I think we've had a lot more conversations about the experience specifically of being a teenage girl and how, how objectified you are. Like at that point, I remember when I was like 13 and I had seen like Mean Girls and all these films and I could not wait to wear tank tops and mini skirts. Like that was like what I thought high school was about. I was like, it's about wearing tank tops and jean mini skirts. And I wore a tank top and a skirt, literally like one time to Walmart over the summer. And there were so many adult men staring at me that I immediately was like, you know, I think I'd rather wear a jacket every day. I feel like that's when you start having your first experience of realizing what the male gaze is because you're not quite used to your own body and it's still changing in so many ways that it's kind of hard to feel comfortable with it. And in this film, I feel like Jennifer's transitions between when she's eight and when she's not eight and just um, even the way that she dresses when she's eaten something versus when she hasn't kind of is the same way that you kind of feel when you're going through puberty. Your body is changing so much. One day you wake up looking on top of the world. I still do this. Like when I'm ovulating, I look fantastic. (laughs) And then when like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> On my period, I
2: look terrible. Oh, but they didn't need rough sex. <laughs> when he calls her Fertile Myrtle. I love that. 10 out of 10. I think Diablo Cody does comedy and like, teenage dialogue in like the best way.
3: So much better than Sam Levinson.
2: <laughs> wow, any excuse to drag that man <laughs> and you'll dig.
3: Back to what I was saying, um, there's just this very relatable experience to how she changes the way she dresses and the way she acts when she's eaten versus when she hasn't eaten or even like the way that she is when she first gets to the van and she realizes something is wrong like there is sort of I mean sometimes even an empowering feeling when you're flirting with someone who is older than you when you're a teenage girl I'm, I'm gonna be honest I remember when I first got to college and I was 18 and, like, I would have conversations with guys who were older than me, whether it be, like, they were senior in college or, like, they were a grad students or something. And I was so flattered by the attention until I realized where it was going. And then suddenly, like, I was a child again and afraid. And I think the way that Jennifer is in this movie is quite relatable. Like, yes, yeah, she has, we have this connotation or she actually says that she isn't a virgin and she's slept with all these guys or whatever. But she's still very afraid of getting into a van with a bunch of grown men like any teenage girl would. And she still is uncomfortable with her body at parts. And she's not quite, doesn't quite know what to do with the amount of objectification that she has received from her peers. and Even to some extent, Needy. Like, I don't think she realizes the extent that Needy views her almost as like an opponent. But also as someone who she desires sex from like that I don't think even Jennifer has come to terms with that so I think when I watched this when I was older I realized that Jennifer is the villain in a way when she is killing people but she's also the victim of the story Um, because all of these people were in a way just wanting something from her and I think I mentioned it in the first version that we did of this, how men will sacrifice women or women's innocence for their own success. And Jennifer very much feels like a mirror of what Megan Fox went through in this industry. She's someone who has always been viewed as attractive. Even when she was in like Confessions of a Teenage Trauma Queen, she was kind of typecast as being the hot girl in the film who was like, maybe she's a mean girl. She's got an attitude. She's sassy. She's hot. And that was who she was assigned in Hollywood and she ended up in all these roles where she was very much objectified the wind blowing her hair like a tank top that shows her cleavage and in this film Jennifer is kind of going through the same thing but she's also like Megan is both using her attractiveness for her own benefit but also afraid of what it gets her in the world and not always comfortable in the positions that she ends up with and in because of how she looks and how people perceive her and that's something that I think you're just not able to grapple with when you're that young so I think this film does a great job at showing the complications of growing up as a young woman learning about your sexuality being confused on how you use your sexuality to navigate the world how to use it for your own benefit because in a way you can't in the patriarchy Like you're always in this position where the person who is in control, even when you think it's you, is really just some dude. So like even in this position where Jennifer thinks initially when she like thinks she's duping the band by pretending to be a virgin and she thinks she's in the position of power like, ah, the lead singer is going to be so impressed. And then she realizes something's wrong and they end up sacrificing her, but it backfires and when they realize she's not dying they don't stop they keep stabbing her and then even so much as like with her own friend when she's expecting more sympathy from needy yes she's going after these guys but i mean for the most part were any of them that great i'm not saying they needed to die but like were they really that great of people maybe the goth dude but also like we get the idea that needy had some sort of a crush on him even though she did have a boyfriend And that they had been, like, fostering some sort of bond. But the second Jennifer looked at him, Needy did not exist to him anymore. Like, so on one hand, like, I think she's expecting Needy to understand her perspective and see where she's coming from. But the internalized misogyny, as we discussed earlier, prevents Needy from seeing the ways that Jennifer is a victim in the situation. And she sees her as an opponent and also from the male gaze. In this movie, I think it has so many queer undertones, but it also just really unpacks the way that I think women with a lot of internalized misogyny, which I think we all have some internalized misogyny, it's just a blind spot that happens. But I think women with a lot of internalized misogyny are incapable of seeing women who are conventionally attractive or who receive a lot of male attention as the victims that they often are we have seen this with the countless amount of tiktok hate campaigns against random women on the internet for literally nothing at all or how quickly people will get on a male celebrity side because they liked him in one movie or think he's cute and they're like ah, there's no way this cute man could be a danger to me like there's very much something at play here that i think is quite interesting because i think even now you still have a lot of people who don't understand how fucked up megan fox's career is like the way that she was blacklisted for speaking out about being sexualized and how much this movie is kind of a satire on that and also the way that her career was completely derailed by a bunch of men because she didn't want to be with them
1: going back to the female gaze the sort of i guess like conceptual difference between a perspective and a gaze it feels to me like in the same way with like representation politics the importance placed solely on one aspect of progress in air bunnies whatever like that entails that doesn't challenge the system that it's working within so I think that just focusing like on narrative and like leaving behind the visual aspects of a film means that like the male gaze that patriarchal structure of viewing the world is kept as this kind of like skeleton that lives on. It feels to me like women working so hard to get in the workplace so that they can contribute to the capitalist system without challenging that very system. There's many other examples. But I definitely agree overall that this film has like I think it had a feminist intention and for its time definitely like met some of those goals. Like you said, Zaber about how when they were making out you didn't even sort of clock that it would could be queer or gay because I think especially during that time it was just so common to see chicks making out in films with no like honestly no queer subtext it felt so aggressively straight and so within the male gaze that like who would even think and I think that does inform a lot of the way girls feel about themselves, about desire, about how they express sexual desire towards another person. I think it's the reason a lot of bi women don't really realize they're bi, because I think that male gaze directed towards other women, the objectification that's sort of built into pretty much like every media form, and obviously this is taught, but it feels natural. I think it feels indistinguishable from sexual attraction so you're like I have sexual feelings for that woman but so does everyone and in everything I watch and everything I consume just so does everything it's difficult to like maybe come to terms with how much of like who you are and what you feel towards people might be like influenced by a very misogynistic culture and homophobic culture but I also think like not to worry too much I know that's really easy to say but I think making this sort of like academic or philosophical exercise of like trying to nitpick and intellectualize everything you feel towards other human beings is probably not going to help you trying to fit everything we experience into little boxes can be very very stressful In so many ways, maybe this film was even more confusing to watch than enlightening as a young person. I I think, like Ty said,
2: like watching it when you're older is really different. I just wanted to talk about, A, a bit about intention. I don't know Diablo Cody's sexuality. I do know in an After Ellen interview, she said this, and I quote, Obviously, we knew people were going to totally sensationalize it, the kiss scene. They're beautiful girls. The scene is hot. I'm not afraid to say that. There is sexual energy between the girls, which is kind of authentic because I know when I was a teenage girl, the friendships that I had with the other girls were almost romantic. They were so intense. I wanted to sleep at my friend's house every night. I wanted to wear her clothes. We would talk on the phone until our ears ached. I wanted to capture that heightened feeling you get as an adolescent that you don't really feel as a grown up. You like your friends when you're a grown up, but you don't need to sleep in the same bed with them and talk to them on the phone until 5 a.m. every night. It's kind of what you were saying earlier, Taya, about like female friendships and like wanting to be them and, and like that blurs a line of desirability. I do think it's not necessarily as queer in its attention as a community might have received the film to be. In this way, it more does seem to be about kind of what you were touching on, Taya, about like that codependency as well at that age. Like you're so insecure, you're looking for external factors to define you. And that might be your, your kind of best friend and that might project or turn into sexuality that's still queer, like, you know what I mean? Like, whatever, like, label identity, like, that's still sort of a queer experience, but whether or not it's overtly queer or gay in its intention, yeah, I'm not sure. I didn't watch this at the time when I was a queer youth, but I do watch it now, and I think I'm going to offer somewhat of a defense of it in the sense that I, I agree that it is presenting queerness as through, like, a misogynistic lens, but... I find it so intensely relatable watching it now as like an adult, a queer adult, because it's almost through that like misogyny that like allows you the freedom to explore it. I know that sounds really paradoxical, but it's giving you a problematic framework that you know is problematic, but that means that I can watch it and not feel like guilt or shame. Like if I had put on blue is the warmest color, i mean that is still has its own male gaze but that's like an overtly lesbian film Do you know what i'm talking about like i cannot put on that film for any other reason other than like <laughs> wanting to see lesbians whereas like this film could like fly under the radar because at its core it's about like you know god my best friend's such a bitch you know like it has that misogynistic sheen which protects it and allows it to be almost viewed and consumed without guilt it does offer somewhat of that like safety in the fact that this queer subject is in fact that it is more of a subtext, you know what I mean? But yeah, I do find that there is something quite relatable about that experience because even though it's not queer, as Zeba said, like it's not, it's not a radical queer lens. It's not queering cinema, but it does encapsulate elements of the queer experience filtered through the supernatural as well. And it's very camp and stuff. Maybe I'm just speaking to why like a modern queer audience kind of loves this film. Megan is serving and she's a little cunty and she has like those zesty one-liners as like, you know, my favorite one being when she's like, do you get all your murder weapons from Home Depot? And says, God, you're so butch. Another reason for kind of revisiting this film would be that Barbara Creed has released a kind of part two or a follow-up to the original The Monsters Feminine text. And it's called The Return of the Monsters Feminine. And she focuses on like female directors specifically and she covers Jennifer's body. She reads Jennifer as, like, in a literally quotes Judith Butler as, like, a performing femininity. And, like, everything about her is constructed for the male gaze, much as we've been talking about here. And she says, like, as a cheerleader, that is the role she's performing. And you can kind of see, like, we talked about how, like, how much agency, like, Jennifer has in this position. Like, Ty, you talked about, like, you know, she can wield that power, but how much power can you really have? Like, as in she does have agency in the sense that she's like, I'm gonna go get I'm gonna get free drinks by playing hello titty with the bartender. That's how she's like tried to get power in a patriarchal world where they're all sexualizing her. Creed then goes on to say, like, the only person that she's really drops a masquerade with and is her true self is with needy. And this is a direct quote. She says, What Jennifer's body does is establish Jennifer as a sexy, provocative, and stereotypical cheerleader, and then sets out to deconstruct that image. She is the body par excellence who when she metamorphosizes, literally becomes what is buried beneath that sexist image, the male nightmare of the seductive, but abject man-eating female monster who is also a stereotype, but this one has a fatal bite. If we're going back to the original Monsters Farm, I think that she does encapsulate that like, castration anxiety thing. Like It is that sort of Freudian lens and like she's performing that, but then she literally becomes what men fear about women's sexuality at the same time. She's also kind of a female castratrice because she, like in the original Monstrous Feminine text, that is the kind of rape revenge um, situation. And we talked about in episode one how that scene was like metaphorical rape, but actually in this context, it's obviously like a death and a demonic possession. That's like, I think horror speak for like sexual assault, and it's all very coded in that way. But yeah, so I think that she also operates as like a female castratrice uh, character as well. It's a different perspective of the monstrous feminine because she's talking about the monstrous feminine, like in her demonic possession, liberates her and her queerness. Do you know what I mean? Because she does point out that it's only when she's a demon that she's allowed to like or she makes out with needy. And that's like when it becomes it moves from just dialogue about being queer and hints to like overtly making out. Creed goes on to talk about how... um, like when she's she's that sort of possessed character she's no longer necessarily performing like she's no longer doing it for male validation it's no longer she's now taking ownership of the body that was taken from her i mean she's still seducing men but it's like you know she's reclaiming that agency through that kind of rape revenge tale her supernatural powers unmoor her from her human identity transforming her into a powerful and queer form of the monstrous feminine who takes no prisoners by drawing on the conventions of the supernatural and the politics of feminine performativity, these films, or she's talking about several films, but Jennifer's Body is free to play with all kinds of imaginary possibilities in relation to a queer identity, defiance, and desire. Queerness is open, flexible, and supernatural, inviting the spectator to imagine the impossible and embrace the possible. Now, obviously, this she's, I think she's affording it a little bit more of a radical lens than we are in our conversations, but I do think there's something in that there is like a queerness that can only be liberated by like that non-human categorization because if you're not even categorized as human then why do you have to be categorized by gender binaries, sexuality binaries etc cetera, etc cetera?
3: i will say i think if needy would have just like dumped chip and got with jennifer her life would have been exponentially better i would say the compact person in this movie is needy
2: oh can we get into it can we get into it yeah yeah I a hundred percent agree with that assessment
0: Niki is needing a men's attention and validation because she feels ugly and she doesn't and also like Jennifer makes her feel ugly like she has to tell her to dress cute to go places I'm sure that doesn't feel good to have your friend be like remember to dress cute I'd be like girl please I don't have to go with you to this club in the middle of the woods.
3: But Needy, to me, is the character that reads as compet. And I never really see people actually say that. Like, I always see people say Jennifer feels compet. And I guess because she's killing men. But I'm like, Needy and her losing her virginity to Chip, it did not seem like she was having a good time. And when she starts realizing that Jennifer is killing the guy, I felt like it was more so because she was started imagining Jennifer. And then, like, then felt that connection. Like, the connection is through, like, the sexual desire.
0: I've seen this movie many times. It's probably like third or fourth time watching it. I don't know why. I never fixated on Chip until now. So the scene that gets me, obviously, is when she's getting ready to go to the club in the woods and he's like, oh, she's like wearing like a crop top or something. He's like, oh, I can see your whole uterus or some shit like that. And he's like, I don't want other guys thinking that. I don't even know what the comment was. It was basically just like him being controlling and telling her what he would rather she not wear. And then needy being like, but Jennifer likes when I dress this way, which is a whole other thing that we can unpack. But like, I was talking to my friend watching it. I was like, what the hell? Like, I would never let a man say that to me. teenager or otherwise. I, I cannot fathom somebody that I'm in a relationship with feeling comfortable enough to like make an asshole comment like that. And my friend was like, no, I think a lot of girls would put up with that. I think that, like, that's very typical. And, like, people don't talk about that when they're, like, talking about their relationships to their friends. Like, it's embarrassing to say that, like, oh, my boyfriend doesn't like the way that I dress or, like, is controlling or, like, says mean things or, like, is a bully or, like, whatever. And I think that is the, like, true epitome of suffering under heteronormativity is that, like, she puts up with so much shit just to feel wanted. And I was like, I was sitting there being like, no, surely this is not what women put up with in their relationships. Like when you feel like you have no other options or you feel like you're not desirable or you are worried about like your place in like the social hierarchy of things in the way that needy might be being friends with Jennifer or being attracted to Jennifer. And you know, once she gets to jail and she's like got the demon inside her and she doesn't give a fuck anymore, she's released all her inhibitions. I don't think she's thinking about men even a little bit. I mean, she's in a women's prison, so that's its own thing. Like, there's something so freeing about when Meaty has the demon spirit within her and has demon powers within her that is completely different from the freedom that Jennifer is experiencing. And I think Chip has a lot to do with that. Like, he's such a shit for brains and he's so horrible to her and he's so rude to her. And at no point does she question being with him. She loves him till the end, till he dies. She's like, oh, Chip, I'm so sad that you've been penetrated by her big, big dick, which I think we did perhaps discuss in the first one. It's super, you know, that scene is what it is. It's very femme femme of her to like literally peg Meadie's boyfriend. Um, I think it's halar and representative of a lot. Like because he sort of like dies as a martyr, we never really get to like interrogate that whole relationship or him as a person. And I think, like, we spend this whole time thinking that Jennifer is jealous of Chip because she wants Meaty, and that is an element of it for sure. But I think she also hates Chip because he's worthy of hating. He's bad to her friend, and I think she can tell whether or not she's there in their, like, quiet, intimate moments. Like, Chip and um, Jennifer have this sort of, like, rivalry that is completely. Like, not even, right? Like, I think that Chip has no good reason to hate Jennifer besides that, like, no, he has no good reason. He says to her, stop stealing my girlfriend when the two of them are having, like, their girls' night out. I'm like, excuse me? She is not stealing your girlfriend. She could. You don't don't know what kind of stealing of your girlfriend she could do if she put her mind to it. And maybe he suspects that and there's, like, some sort of subconscious jealousy about, like, him suspecting that she might have feelings for needy or be attracted to needy. But I think he's more he's that's giving him too much credit. I think he's oblivious and an idiot and a misogynist. And like it makes for Needy's transformation to be like that much more satisfying in the end. It it sucks that she even has to mourn him. Like, duh. I was totally like Jennifer wasn't just fuck chip because she was jealous. It was beyond jealousy. He sucks. Honestly
2: preach. I watched this and just thought this is the most insufferable. I was triggered basically. I was like this is like every terrible man I've had to encounter in my life. I don't think the film was like radical in that it was trying to necessarily show this if anything like you said Chip dies a martyr. But I do think as a byproduct of what this film does, it does really show an accurate depiction of toxic masculinity even in its more subtle forms, even your like even in your boyfriend. Like I'm not talking about the high school jock who we all know is a misogynist in every coming of age movie ever. I'm talking about it as it presents in your own boyfriend. And I think this film shows that so well, even if it's not trying to take that particular point down. Maybe it was. I would love to have a conversation again with Ty Cody and talk about intent with this as well. Because everything about him, like, first of all, he's interested in sex, like, from the get-go. In the very, like, start of the movie, he's like, you see a scene of him undoing his belt buckle when they're making out. Not trying to say, like, obviously that is how you initiate contact. But it felt very much like, he's instigate he wants sex
0: he makes a comment about like buying condoms ahead of time and he's like not that i thought that like not to presume anything And she's like oh yeah of course
2: he bought condoms again and he like it's like all throughout the movie there's like ways that he's like not even so subtly pressuring her into sex again like he said the comment about stop kidnapping my gf when they're just hanging out like he's so insecure He's also insecure when she has another guy friend. He gets like jealous. He makes snide comments about it throughout the film. It's like such small dick energy. Like, come on, why are you so threatened by literally everyone that ever talks to your girlfriend? He insists that Needy and Jennifer, he says, you have nothing in common. They're friends. Like, in the Needy set, Needy even says something like, yeah, we have loads in common. And then, like, it's like, I don't really think how, like, see how you could, like, see those two friends and be like, they have nothing in common. They clearly share, a, like, first of all, they like each other, they're in love. but. That was so belittling of, like, their bond for him to say that. Like, he just sees Jennifer as, like, this, like, vapid, toxic bitch because he's viewing her through a misogynistic lens. Like, he has no ability to see the depth of women at all. When they're having sex and she, like, starts crying because she's having – and screaming because she's having visions of Jennifer killing somebody, he does stop and he says, oh, am I hurting you? And that's sympathetic. But then right after, right after, he smiles and says, am I too big?
0: I know, that shit fucking sent me to oblivion.
1: That's great writing, you can't
2: deny it. (laughs) I would love to be able to say that to somebody, honestly. Needy calls him crying, tells him about the fire, and tells him that she thinks Jennifer might be, like, have been, like, assaulted but raped. And he literally says, who cares about Jennifer, people just burned to death. As if, like, her being worried that her best friend was being assaulted wouldn't be a priority in her mind as well as the fire. It was so unsympathetic. And it's just because he felt threatened and was just a terrible person and incapable of seeing Jennifer's humanity. And I was like, this is terrible. And then to top it all off, he gets with Jennifer after they break up. After all that, it's like, you're clearly just looking, you're just looking to have sex. He would have fucked whoever he thought he could get, whoever was
0: the hottest girl that he believed that he could reasonably convince to have sex with him he was going to do it and he thought it was needy but when it was proven to not be needy he's like whatever duh. forget needy
2: but i agree about your point about needy's transformation And in fact barbara creed talks about needy's transformation into her own version of the monstrous femme queer monstrous femme as well and says that she kind of exists because she can now even escape prison that she's in a permanent state of revolt against the system from her like appropriation of the monstrous feminine is a bit more feels a bit more radical in that way and in fact I think we talk about it in ep one Jennifer being punished for her sexuality and I was like yes I think Jennifer is because she dies but Needy isn't because she survives and she just has power and is able to like you know kill people without the need of craving blood and whatever because it doesn't actually say that that Needy needs to eat people I think she just has the powers and none of the drawbacks so she's kind of the queer liberated mod femme Everybody, if you pledge tier three on our Patreon, you can become a May Queen and you can send us your film thoughts and we'll discuss them. Uh, We'll pick a few and discuss them. So here's one we had from Spicy Grapes who said... Loved this movie, I hadn't watched it in a few years, and revisiting it made me love Diablo Cody's writing, especially the writing the female experience. Maybe a stretch, but I found myself intrigued with how Needy and Jennifer could be seen as doppelgangers of the self. I found myself thinking of myself as a teenager and how I navigated understanding myself. I enjoyed nerdy stuff, but I also loved makeup, etc. Along the line of the conflict of the self, I also thought that Needy and Jennifer represented how people react differently to trauma. That some of us may visibly show distress whilst others may hide it and appear to others as horrible, but realistically they are just processing their trauma.
1: I really like the doppelgangers point. I think when we did our doppelganger scene, we, def- we must have, especially in Black Swan, touched on how doppelgangers are often used in a, a queer way to kind of like represent unexpressed sexual desire that's often like taboos you don't you you might feel ashamed to express and i feel like doppelganger is a great way to like explore that and it kind of ties into the the psychic connection they share it seems to represent this sort of like shared and very intense intimacy i haven't really thought about the trauma point i think it's something quite easy to brush over as a film that is very fun and campy horrible shit happens (laughs) like really horrible like filtered through this very like stereotypical mean girl and her sort of nerdy sidekick it seemed to align with their characters but maybe you're really on to something with it being like just another way that it's like a more sympathetic and compassionate characterization of women but also like young young girls going through something really terrible
0: Jennifer just really brushes everything off with all those like one liners, you know, and everybody around them in the school, in the community who's dealing with like the aftermath of the fire to be like, what the fuck is wrong with you people? You're kind of like treating this. I don't know, like a bunch of their classmates died. And a lot of it is like being treated really flippantly. And I think Jennifer, most of all, is even making comments in class, I think, where she's like, oh, so and so died. haha." ha. Like, she... I don't know like we're meant to believe that this is like the demon speaking through her and that's why she's like unable to like process the events that have happened or like empathize with anything that's going on or even like deal with her own experiences and then Needy once she has I'll call it it's like she has the demon in her she isn't like flippant or funny or like dismissive but she is she does have that like no more fucks to give kind of attitude and that's when she turns on her you know rape revenge fantasy type of like thing that happens in the credits right like she has different motivation i mean it continues the story obviously but like her and jennifer end up in the exact same position killing men because of the hatred they have for men because of the things that they've experienced and like needy's doing it on jennifer's behalf or like to avenge her death or what they did to her but it's yeah it's kind of like the exact same thing that like both of them reach this point of no return where they're like you know i just i'm just gonna take care of business and fuck feelings and they've never served me which is like very like maybe girl bossy and good for you and that that maybe it falls into that camp but i think it's fun
1: Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Feminine. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, SoundCloud, and Spotify at the Monstrous Feminine Podcast and on Twitter at the MonfemPod. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and follow us on TikTok at the Monstrous Feminine Pod for podcast clips and more fun. Brooms up, witches out.